morning, church. Would you turn in your Bibles to James 1, 27? It's found on page 1011 in your pew Bibles. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. Thanks be God. Let us pray. Great God and everlasting Father, we are so grateful for, for this physical building which allows us to gather to worship God, the one who provides us with a great salvation. We're also thankful for your spiritual church we call Gospel Life, where we gather, we grow, and we give for the glory of God. Our focus this morning is on giving, particularly to orphans and widows. James reminds us about that our giving should be actually hilarious out of the bounty God bestows on us. In other words, we can afford to give. Now be with our pastor who will explain more fully what it means pursuing love for our disenfranchised orphans and widows. We pray all this in the one who is the essence of what it means to give. In the name of the triune God, amen. Thank you so much, Chuck, for reading our scripture today and for praying for us. We so appreciate it. We do hope that God will use his word today in our lives, that it will correct our thinking, that it will draw our hearts toward him and our hands to serving him. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking in James chapter 1 verse 27 as, uh, as Chuck read. Our focus today is, uh, is on what God calls us to here in relationship to uh, widows and orphans, but, in, but even broader in relationship to what he defines religion as. So today on Widows and Orphans Sunday, uh, we're going to emphasize that aspect definitely, but there's more more to it. There's stuff that must be in place for us to be able to love the way God calls us to love here in this text. And so we're going to look at that today. Before we do, I just want to mention a few things. So um, I just want to piggyback on what Roger said in regards to the uh, Light Up the Holidays Parade. You know, one of the things that I appreciate uh, living here in this community is all the things that I can benefit from in this community. But the church is not meant here just to benefit from the community. The church is meant to be a benefit to the community. And obviously one way we do that is by proclaiming God's glory through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But another way we do is by serving in our community. And so uh, the, the parade that's coming up is just one opportunity that we have to serve in our community. And so I encourage you to sign up for that. Another way that uh, I'll emphasize in my sermon, but I wanted to say this right at the beginning, 
um, is uh, as we think about widows and orphans, we're kicking off our Give for Gastoni in our Sunday school classes with the kids. So be generous in your allowance, parents, this, this month. And uh, allow them to give, encourage them to give. This is one of the ways that we can show care for orphans. So we have uh, been supporting Gastoni for quite a few years. He is in Uganda. And uh, so his picture is up on the wall out there. You can see him. And uh, so we're excited to be able to take part in that and care for those whom God calls us to care for. I mentioned this in Sunday school. We talked talk through uh, 1 Timothy 5 and the, the obligation that the church has to support widows and uh, who are truly widows. And uh, so, But in there, I talked about the fact that we do have a benevolence fund here at our church, and part of what we do with that benevolence fund is supporting widows. And so if you would like to uh, put action uh, to that, you could give towards the benevolence fund in the future. Um, so you just, would, you just write that on the giving card uh, or giving envelope that uh, you'd like to give some of your money to the Benevolence Fund and write the amount, and that'll go towards that in helping widows. So today we're here in James chapter 1, verse 27, and my main point for today is this. God demands His people have completely pure religion shown in lives of charity and purity. God demands His people have completely pure religion shown in lives of charity and purity. Now when we come to a passage like this, and we see this word word religion, I don't know if this came up with you, but religion has often got a uh, poor uh, break as of late. And often even Christians will say, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, or something to that effect. When we come here to this passage, we see at least the way that um, those who have translated this word here in the ESV, they have translated it religion. And it's something that God expects of His people. And so as we walk through this, my first point is going to seek to answer the question, what is meant by religion? Secondly, I'm going to answer the question, how does someone participate in completely pure religion. And then thirdly, what does completely pure religion look like in a believer's life? So those are the three points that we're going to walk through in trying to understand what God demands of His people. This is a call by the writer James here as he is placing this call out onto God's people from God. That they are meant to live out religion before God. Let's ask for God's blessing on His Word. Father, we ask that You would bless Your Word this morning. Help us to understand what You desire of us, what You call us to do, how this should look. Lord, give grace to us, for we desperately need it. We are poor, poor uh, people that... I have a problem with trying to define our own lives, trying to set our own goals. Our desires wage within us and lead to death, and yet You provide for us life. And so I pray this morning we would see it, we would take it, we would embrace it, we would live it out. And we thank You for this Word. We ask that it would be a blessing to all who are willing to hear, to all who are willing to take it in, understand, 
to all who are willing to understand so much so that it, it affects the way they act. Lord, let us be hearers of the Word and doers of it. Not hearers only, just deceiving ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is meant by religion? The word religion here has been translated in other parts of Scripture as piety. Um, it could be translated as worship. A longer definition of the word here is an expression of devotion to a transcendent being. So a divine being that is worshipped by the devotion of its followers. Uh, the biblical God is meant to be the intended recipient of this kind of religion. There's meant to be no other God before Him. We are told in the Ten Commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments is we are not to have any other gods before God. God is meant to be the object of our devotion, the object of our worship. So in a biblical understanding, the word religion here is that, that we as God's people are expressing devotion to God Himself. That's just what religion means here. It's not anything more than that, and it's definitely not anything less than that. It is our lives lived in worship to Him. And in fact, the word religion here could be a summary statement of what we desire to do as a church, which is to gather for the gospel, to grow in the gospel, to give out the gospel. Why? So that we might do religion. So that we might glorify God. Religion. That's what it is. That's what we're here to do. To express our devotion and glory to God. Now, as we see here, it says that this religion that is pure and undefiled is before God the Father. It is before Him in the sense that it is meant to be rendered to Him. We go into His presence and live our lives in front of Him. Not just when you're here on Sunday, but every day. We who claim to be followers are religious in the sense that we live lives of devotion before God toward Him every single day. But not only is that before meant to be understood as being rendered to Him, but rendered for Him. In the sense that God is the one who defines what is truly religious. It, it means that we cannot go before God and do whatever we think will worship Him. Whatever we like to do to worship Him. Rather, we do it before God, and God is the sovereign judge of whether we actually worship Him or not. He stands before us on His throne, and we bow down before Him in worship in the ways that He calls us to. He defines the religion that He desires as pure and undefiled here in this text. And essentially, these words mean the same thing. One is a positive way of placing it, pure, and the other is a more of a negative way, undefiled, not, not stained, not blemished, but pure. As one writer states, in the present context, these are not external 
or ritual requirements. They're not some type of some, some type of action that we do in order to uh, create religion. Rather, they are ethical qualities that must be expressed in action. They are the, the we ourselves must be holy. And that holiness then is expressed in holy actions. And this is what the writer of Hebrews describes when he says, when God is speaking to his people and says, Be holy even as I am holy. That be set apart, be made for the purpose of worshiping God. Be made holy. And he goes on to even say that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No one can stand in his presence without holiness. No one can come before him and not be completely demolished before God. Again, it goes back to this idea that we don't get to decide what we do that is worship before God. We don't get to, I'm, I'm clean enough, I'm holy enough, I'm good enough. That's not something we get to decide. When it comes to religion, God is the object of our devotion, and He is the one who defines what that devotion is meant to look like, what is acceptable in His sight. I mean, just think about it. Who wants a God who we get to tell what's acceptable? <laughs> Wouldn't that kind of put us here and Him here? Like, who's getting the worship now? But yet, that's what we want. We want a God who we can define religion the way we want it. We want a God who accepts whatever religion we give. Let's do Him a favor today and show up for church. That'll make Him happy. Let's do Him a favor and, and He'll give some coins to somebody. Well, let's, you know, I did God a favor today. I was good. I didn't, I didn't scream at my coworker. I just politely told him that he's wrong and he needs to shut up. Like, you know, I mean, it's not us that gets to decide what worship looks like, what devotion looks like, what religion looks like. God gets to determine it. And God calls us to be holy. And in turn, as we are holy, we are meant to give holy action to Him. Pure and undefiled. Ethical qualities that must be expressed in action. So God sets the standard. And if we, if we could combine these together, this pure and undefiled, into a, 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 a statement, I would call it completely pure. What does he say about it? He, completely pure. God demands complete, pure religion from his people. We don't enter into God's presence tainted. There's not a place for us there. He cannot endure even the presence of sin. We must be holy. We must be holy, holy. Not the same spelling, all right? W-H-O-L-E. Holy, holy, right? We completely pure. That's what he demands, which begins to make a problem for us, right? Right? How many of us are completely pure, without any blemish, without any spot, without any wrinkle at all? Who of us can say, I have not sinned? Like, which of us could stand there when Jesus comes up to this woman who is caught in adultery, and when he says, you who are without sin, throw the first stone, you say, me, me, I can do it. 
How many of us can say that we have never sinned? That we have never broken any of God's commandments? None of us can say this. God sets this standard of completely pure religion. And this is what pleases Him. This is what He accepts. And what we find as we compare ourselves to this is that we fall short of it. Which leads me to my second question. God demands complete, pure religion. And therefore, if He demands it, we must have it. How does someone participate in completely pure religion? Especially if that someone is not completely pure. How do we do it? Can we just say a prayer? Can we just affirm a truth? Can we just perform some type of a ritual that will cleanse us? Can we swear on a holy book? Can we become a member of this purity club? How is it possible? Well, in verse 27, he doesn't tell us that. But luckily, as we look at the context, James does tell us exactly what we need in verse 18. Look back up at James chapter 1, verse 18. In verse 18, we're told that of his own will... And this will, this him here, who's doing this, is described as the Father of lights. It's God Himself. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creation. Here, James lovingly describes for us four truths that are completely and utterly necessary for us to be able to live out this pure religion that, that we're called to in verse 27. The first of these is this, that Christians are brought forth. That phrase, they're brought forth, is, is, could be understood similarly to other passages of Scripture that we often know very well and maybe terms that we use, but this is the same idea as the new birth, that we are born again, that we are made alive, those of us who are dead have been made alive. We have been regenerated. We have been brought forth into life, into something new, into something different than what we were. We were once dirty vessels that as these vessels came in to be used for the worship of God, God says, no, no, we cannot use. These are not holy I am a God who is holy. These vessels that you want to use to worship me are not holy. They cannot be used. And then what do we read, James 1? That by the will of God, Christians were brought forth, were made new, were born again, were made holy so that we might be vessels brought in and used for God's worship. This is the first truth that we see. We have a new birth but the second thing we see here is it's God's own will is the origin of this work. It's of His own will that He has made His people alive. And that's good news because we can't clean ourselves enough. We can't make ourselves. That which was unholy can't make itself holy. Something outside of itself had to come. I mean, the whole Old Testament declares this to us. It is by blood that things were made holy. 
Because the thing itself couldn't make itself holy. So a sacrifice would have to be made in order to make that holy. We cannot sacrifice ourselves to make ourselves holy. We could not sacrifice anyone else to make ourselves holy because they're sinful too. They're unholy. We needed a holy substitute who is able to make us holy. And so God of His own will gives it to us. Gives us the thing that is able to make us holy. By His own will, He brings forth this holiness. It is Him who makes us holy. It is His power that makes us holy. It is the work of Jesus Christ giving us His holiness that makes us holy. We cannot make ourselves holy. As we read earlier from John chapter 1, it was not by the will of man or the will of flesh, but by the will of God that people were made God's children. And the third truth is this, that the Gospel is the means God uses. Notice here what it says. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth. This Word of truth that is given to us that brings life to us is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The declaration that the One who is holy, who is righteous before God, was willing to humble Himself and come and give His life for us. To give us His holiness and His righteousness and take our sins and our unholiness and our unrighteousness on Himself. We're coming later today to partake of this table that declares that His blood was shed as the new covenant. The covenant that gives life to His people. It is by this word of truth that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who was slain before the very foundations of it. Always part of God's plan, always part of God's will, that He would bring about the redemption of His people, the righteousness of His people, the holiness of His people. And the fourth truth he has here in verse 18 is the end of God's design is that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. And this is what leads us into verse 27. This, this idea of being the first fruits. That there's a harvest that's coming. And the, the first gleanings of that harvest are what the first fruits. They're just, they're, just, they're just the first buds that come out. The first grains that come up. And these, these the, the, the Israelites would gather together and they would, they would sacrifice it to the Lord as the, as the first of what God had provided from their bounty in hopes that the harvest that's coming would be great. That it would be like that of the first fruits. The first fruits to some degree are a guarantee of what is yet to come. The expectation of what they have to look forward to. And what is he trying to declare about us here is that the life God produces in us is evidence of what is yet to come. The spark of life that is brought into our lives as Christians. 
We who once were dead but now are living. This holiness that we were devoid of and yet now is a part of our life. This new being that we are in Jesus Christ is the evidence of what is yet to come. But it's meant to be evidence. There's meant to be this taste of the glorious banquet that awaits when Jesus returns and that taste is us. The world is meant to taste what the rule of Jesus Christ will look like because it has us living in it. We're meant to show them what the the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ living in His eternal love looks like by the way we live right now. We are those first fruits. This life that we live in Jesus Christ. As Paul said, it's not our own. We have died with Christ. And now He lives in us. It's His first fruits of what He's doing. It's His rule in us that the world is meant to taste and see. And these truths are the basis of James' discussion on what is completely pure religion. Without the salvation that he is describing in verse 18, we have no hope of this completely pure religion. No hope at all. God demands it, and we fall short. And on our own, we cannot. We cannot live up to it. And yet these truths describe to us what He gives. So that without the new birth, there is no real worship of God in word or deed. As Isaiah 64.6 rightly describes a person pursuing righteousness without the God of righteousness. Isaiah 64.6 describes the person as this. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. These are the same people who are going to stand before Jesus one day as, as we read in Matthew uh, chapter 7, I believe. And there, as they stand before Him, they're going to proclaim to Him that they are His people and He's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity. Even though they say, we did all this in Your name. We did all this for You. Our religion was for You. And He says it's not completely pure religion. You did not put your faith and trust in me. I do not know you. Those who try to live religiously without the new birth cannot do it. In fact, James even here in his text describes the the type of living that this looks like. The double-minded man who is unstable. The rich who put their hope in riches that fade away. The sinner in verse 15 who following his own desires only finds death. Yet what do we find in 18? God gives life. God brings us forth. The real worship of God in word and deed is found through the Gospel of Jesus Christ as 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
Notice how the author of the letter of Hebrews describes our dependence on God to live a life that worships God when in Hebrews 13 he writes, Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, may he equip you with every good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. How? Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. All these verses just tell us that God must regenerate us. That we must embrace Jesus and the Gospel if we are ever to live out a completely pure religion that God demands. So if you have not yet embraced the Gospel, turn from your sins. Believe in the Gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ today as your only hope for life. If you have embraced the Gospel, the first thing you should do is praise God for your new birth. Praise God that He has worked in you life. And the second thing, the second thing is that we should live out our new birth. We should seek to live a completely pure religion every moment of our lives. That's how we are meant to live. God demands it. We must have it. And now we're told how we get it. We get it through a God who gives life through His Gospel. So what's next? Third question, what does completely pure religion look like in a believer's life? While there are many other things we can look at here in this text, we're going to focus in on verse 27, where James mentions two things. Christians should care for orphans and widows, and Christians should keep themselves unstained from the world. Now as we come to this text, we have to realize that obviously James is not interested in giving a full explanation of what constitutes true piety or this completely pure religion. These are not the only two things that the Bible calls us to do as God's people. But they are two things meant to represent what it looks like for us to live out this religion. He mentions these two things, which one is a social concern and one is regards to moral purity. So these are two necessary parts to living a completely pure religion, but they are not the only parts. So if someone ever comes to this verse and says, hey, I'm just doing these things, so I'm good, realize that they are not taking this verse seriously. They are pulling it out of its context. These are two necessary parts, but not the only part. In saying that, someone can have these parts. Someone can care for widows and orphans, or someone can try to live a life that is loving or honest or gentle or pure that goes against the way that the world normally functions and yet still not have completely pure religion. Why? Because completely pure religion, as we looked at already, doesn't come from doing these things. It comes from the life that God has given to us so that we then might do these things. Like These things come out of it, not they make it happen. So someone can try to do these things. Someone can live their whole life running an orphanage and yet not have the religion that God describes here. I'm so glad that they care for orphans. It's great. But God 
only accepts that which is holy. And we're only made holy in Jesus Christ. So I would encourage the good works even of unbelievers and yet still remind them that their good works are as filthy rags before a God who demands holiness. So the point here is not to say that if you have these two things, you have everything you need. Rather, the point is that those who have a completely pure religion, those who are seeking to live out what God calls them to live based upon their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the life that God has given them, will pursue these two things. Not the only things they'll pursue, but they will pursue these two things. So how should we understand these two necessary parts? First of all, Christians are to be charitable in a world of suffering. Our world is full of suffering because of sin. The reason that orphans and widows exist is because of sin. What do we read in Genesis 1? Everything was going great, right? God says, don't eat of the tree of life or you will die. How do we get orphans? Didn't someone die? How do we get widows? Someone die? Indirectly a cause of sin. We live in a world of suffering. And we as Christians need to be the ones that demonstrate charity. We should sow kindness to the poor and the suffering. We should bring hope and help to the hopeless and the helpless. We should live for others, not for ourselves. Say, well, I'm doing okay. My life's doing great. I know the world's broken, but I'm fixing my little realm here. God's given me a few kids and a wife. or you know, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do here. You're not called to live for yourself. You're called to live beyond the borders of your little life and your little home. Sure, you need to care for them. But God's call is far beyond that. We have a call to care, to show charity to those who are suffering. But not only that, we read here that Christians are to be personally pure in a world of sin. Sin is indirectly the cause of all this suffering. So if, if we're seeking to be charitable in a world of suffering, understanding that's broken, and yet we just continue to, to live in reckless abandonment into our sins, aren't we kind of like misunderstanding the whole problem here? Like, How can we just live in sin and not worry about it and think everything's okay? It's sin that brings about the problems. And so what is, Paul, or what is James? I'm saying Paul. I got Paul in my head. James saying here, what is he saying? He's saying, yeah, we need to be charitable, but we also need to be pure. God has not saved us to live out our own sinful desires. He saved us to live out His eternal purposes. And so we should live in a world with an unworldly life. You don't get to decide how God is worshipped, and you don't get to decide how you live because your life is meant to be worshipped. Everything about your life is meant to worship Him. You don't get to determine what is okay and what is not. God does. He determines what is pure. So we should live in the world with an unworldly life. We should always be a servant of God in a world that we know rebels against Him. 
realize this. There are pulls upon you to live in rebellion against God. By, this, by everything about the world around us. We must be servants of God. We do what He tells us. We shouldn't live for what the world lives for. We shouldn't value what the world values. How can we? If we are seeking to follow what God demands, this completely pure religion, God has become the focus. His glory has become our goal and end. His worship. And so our lives are lived out for Him. All that I may burn quickly so that He receives the glory. My life just lived out. I don't want to live here and waste it. Well, I don't want to do too much. You know, I might burn out quickly. If it's for His glory, let it be the case. We need to live in ways that worship Him because God demands His people have completely pure religion shown in lives of charity and purity. Not live for ourselves, but live for Him. Our biggest problem we see as James lists it, he lists it here in verse 14. A person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. What are we to do then? We are to follow God. We are to go His way. We are to walk where He tells us to walk. He knows the way that we are meant to go. And He declares His way of pure religion. So may we live it out for Him in charity and in purity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the challenge that it is to us easy to, you know, for me to be so focused on this life I am living, the way I want things to go, and the hopes and dreams I build up. And yet, a passage like this reminds me, and I hope all of us, that your way is best. Your way is right. Your way is, is the only way we can follow that pleases you. Lord, may we submit to You. May we hear Your Word. And may we seek to live it out. For that is our role. You are the Creator. We are the creation. You are the Lord. We are the servants. You are the Savior. We are the beneficiaries. Lord, we are meant to follow. And You are meant to lead. Or may we truly follow You. In Jesus' name. Amen.